Alright, let's borrow heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for adopting us. Us unworthy slaves, rebels, those who were selfish and uh, really by our sinful nature wanted nothing to do with you. We thank you for turning us around, for opening our eyes, and we thank you for saving us by grace through faith. And most, most of all, we're thankful and grateful for your son, Jesus Christ, who accomplished all the work on the cross necessary to remove our debt from us so that whoever humbles himself and believes in him will forever be saved. Father, we ask that you bless this message, that you guide us, that you teach us by your Holy Spirit. Help us understand supernatural spiritual things. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your Spirit we pray. Amen. All right, obviously you should pray for my tongue this evening. Or already twisting in the opening prayer, that's going to be interesting. The Deceitfulness of Sin, Part 60. So, Pastor carried a point over from last week's series on God's love for orphans. And uh, that's how we started on Sunday. So we're going to start with the same principle today. And out of this came a very important point for this series on the deceitfulness of sin. Helping the helpless. As an extension of Jesus, we reach out to spiritual orphans and literal orphans. Both are noble activities because they involve helping the helpless, the very thing God loves to do. So on the board we see, you know, a wonderful truth, a, a wonderful, simple, pure truth that God lets us participate in this, this noble activity in, in His heart, the activities of His own heart, really. And as God reaches out to the needy, we know that He, he wants us to follow suit. But the question that came up on Sunday is, what if the needy say no thank you? And many do very politely, don't they? Not necessarily spit in your face kind of no, but no thank you, I'm, I'm all set, I'm okay. I really am not into that or whatever, whatever the response is. We've all heard it. So on Sunday, we talked about people unwilling to admit their needs or ask for help. What, what do we do with them? How do we respond? This could be regarding spiritual poverty, being lost in sin, which people don't understand or don't want to understand yet. Or it could be spiritual, um, I'm sorry, it could be material poverty. Either or, whichever type of orphan we're reaching out to, we might get the answer, no thank you. So what happens is, according to God's word, which is what we talked about on Sunday, their arrogance precludes them from the help they actually need. Their arrogance precludes them from accepting or receiving the gift. It might be the most gracious gift. Obviously, salvation is the most gracious gift possible ever for all time. But regardless of what the gift is, it almost doesn't matter. There's a certain pride or arrogance that, that is in them 
that is going to make them refuse even the most beautiful of gifts. And it's obviously really sad. But um, we know the Bible says God gives grace to the humble, and he's opposed to the arrogant. He's not going to um, bow down to them in their arrogance. He's not even going to try to convince them. Because arrogance is something that can't be convinced. Arrogance is uh, wicked. It's, like, it's almost like the door shutting in your face kind of a thing. It is just something you, you cannot um, force someone to snap out of. Uh, the Bible also says in some translations, God makes war with the arrogant. So obviously this is pretty serious. God's response to arrogance is very serious. And therefore we should think about what our response should be. But the point that came out on Sunday is that the needy person can thwart God's grace in his life, for his life, by his own free will. The Bible describes God helping those who are willing to admit their own needs. And as we also talked about, some people might, you know, at the time be naive to their needs. We all were at some point, even if you want to go back to your childhood, we were all naive to our need for Christ at some point. And that's someone the Spirit will help understand because they're not living in arrogance. They're just plain ignorant of the facts at that point in their lives. They're just not ready, we might say. But yet, when God, or or rather when somebody knows, when somebody is convicted, they are then faced with the choice to humbly go to God or not. When someone knows the facts and then says no, that's a serious problem. And God won't bow down to them. Turn again in your Bibles to Luke 18, verse 13. Luke 18, 13. And this passage is such a wonderful illustration. And it's from our Lord's own mouth as well. And we're going to see this a little bit, uh, a little bit again later in the lesson. Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. God gives grace to the humble. He will be exalted or helped by God. Sometimes people are so in the dark, they think they're good when they're bad. And they think they're rich when they're poor. We believers, as those who carry the gospel, can help shed light on their need for spiritual adoption, if they're willing to hear. Go to Revelation 3.16. Revelation 3.16. This next passage, arguably, is what we deal with in America every single day. Revelation 3.16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I am rich, and have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. What a stark contrast. But this is what people do. They get deceived, for example, by wealth. In our country is prime example. They get deceived into thinking they're okay in God's eyes, and they might really they might say, I have no needs because of physical, material wealth. Their estimation of themselves is too high because of possessions. And I remember being there as a young man thinking having certain things, having certain success in business or whatever, it went to my head. And I was like, I have no needs. I'm something else. And that level of deception, um, (laughs) what do you say about it, right? What do do you say to a person who's in that? But pray for them, as we're going to get to again. What do you say? They need to be brought low. Like God brought me low at one point. They need to be brought low so that they open their eyes and see that this is not really, that they're not really all set. They, they, they can't say I'm rich and I'm wealthy and I have need of nothing. They see that they're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked if the right circumstances come into their lives. As we'll see in an upcoming psalm, God, by grace, will even allow people to suffer in certain situations so they finally come to an end of themselves. There's no other way. So if you've wondered how suffering could possibly be grace from God, that's one major way. Because without the suffering, they are not going to come to the end of themselves. They are not going to realize their need. And if they don't realize their need, they're not believing in Christ. Not for real, anyway. They might play a religious game, but they're not going to surrender to him. If a prospective orphan chooses to run away when their new father shows up at the orphanage, their free will is going to be honored. And they might sadly refuse the most gracious, amazing offer, like salvation from a heavenly father. And they choose to stay stuck in a needful situation. Every person has this choice. God will honor their choice, and so should we. We cannot persuade people. We cannot beat them over the head. It doesn't work. How many times do we need to... I mean, I did it for years. Stubbornly, I guess, in my own arrogance. Trying to beat people over the head with the truth when they weren't listening. You know the look, right? So if you know the look, why don't you do what God would do? Which is back off and even turn away and maybe allow them to go through suffering for the time being because they need to, because you can't force anybody. So it's one thing to reach out to someone who's willing to listen, but when in arrogance they shut you down, you must let them lie for now. As Pastor's recent blog said, keep them in your prayers. They're not going to accept your help right now. And as painful or as difficult as it is, especially with those we love, Keep them in your prayers. Watch God work. And on Sunday, we were also reminded not to take it personally. Even people that we love. And that's, 
it's easy to take it personally when it's someone we know or someone that knows us. But that's a big mistake. If the people in Jesus' own hometown disrespected him, how do we think it's not going to be the same for us? So don't be surprised that that's something that uh, we do to ourselves. We're surprised. We shouldn't be surprised. If you're not surprised, it's much easier to handle, isn't it? It's when you're surprised, when you maybe you're thinking a little too highly of yourself than you ought to, that these people should listen to me, right? I know the Bible more than they do, right? We start running through things like that in our heads. We shouldn't be surprised. They're not rejecting you either on the board, 1 Thessalonians 4, 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. That's the truth of the matter. It might look personal. It might even be public. It might even be in front of a small group of people that they brush you off disrespectfully. They're not actually rejecting you. They're rejecting the Holy Spirit. So on Sunday, one of the main points was this. Need must be recognized. God gives man the ability to choose to believe in Jesus for his salvation or not. The first great question to be answered is, do I really need a Savior? The impetus for answering rightly is an understanding or acceptance of his own need. That's why repentance and faith are are paired together, two sides of the same coin. If someone doesn't think they need to repent, that that they're guilty before God, are they really going to trust in Christ? I mean, I'll bring him in on the side because it's, Maybe it's even just uh, in vogue with the family, with my community. Maybe just to have people stop talking to me about him. God looks at the heart. That's not believing in Jesus. That's not trusting in him for salvation. That's something totally different. And so, again, if, if someone doesn't accept their own need, they're not really going to believe in Christ. God extends his grace towards those that respond humbly, or positively, we might say, to his convictions. I want you to think of a car battery. You've all seen a car battery, I hope. Even in, you know, even if you're not going to get your hands dirty, you've seen a car battery. And you know the big positive sign on one side and the big negative sign on the other. Just as an analogy, it's like the free will of our soul. Will we respond positively to the Spirit's conviction about our need for grace as sinners? Or will we respond negatively? It's a simple electrical charge. A simple response of yes or no in the heart of a man. Which makes this all honestly indescribable and incomprehensible. What actually happens in a man's soul. We don't even know what happened in our own soul. Or how it happened. We really don't. It is totally supernatural. So this is just an analogy to maybe picture a person's choosing for or against God when the truth is presented. And for sake of our analogy, isn't it interesting, science has discovered there's electricity at work in our brains. Yet they still have no idea how the brain works. Kind of like we have no idea how the soul works. It is supernatural. 
and it is only helped by the Holy Spirit. We do know this. The Holy Spirit helps the unbeliever understand his needy situation. But he will not interfere with that person's response, positive or negative. He'll help him all the way to the doorstep. He will not interfere with his choice. And God will only extend his grace towards those that choose humility towards the Spirit's conviction, that choose positive for Christ, for their need. On the board, James 4, 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God will not shower someone with blessings if they resist him in arrogance and pride, such as self-sufficiency. He's not going to bless them the way he wants to bless them. And he's not going to give them salvation if someone refuses to admit they need a Savior. Why do you think at one point Jesus said in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. Why did Jesus say that? Because self-sufficiency, self, really, self-sufficiency stands in the way of man receiving God's grace. Man's own arrogance stands in the way. I'm sufficient. I'm able on my own. I'm good enough on my own. And that is like a brick wall between man and God. Man puts it up. But it's like, how, how is man going to walk through that brick wall? Humility, however, is the great release. Like a release valve on a fire hose. It goes from being stopped to being poured out. Man can resist God and keep holding it in if he wants to. That's pride. Pride deceiving him to think he's self-sufficient. This is like one of the major problems right here. This is one of the major stumbling blocks on why someone doesn't believe and be saved. Self-sufficiency. Pride of thinking one has his own abilities, being sufficient. And this is even a worldwide problem because it's a religion problem. Remember, every other religion in the world is about how man can appease God on his own. Every other one. How man's own works and his own ability, if he strives hard enough, if he wants it bad enough, can please or satisfy God on his own. That's religion. That's every religion in the world except true Christianity. So it's everywhere. This pride deceiving self into thinking he doesn't need a savior. Or man can decide in humility to let go, to be honest about himself before God and accept the, the help, the offer of help, which is so beyond words. But he won't see it until he's humble or humbled. Turn to Psalm 40, verse 16. Psalm 40, 16. So man can either keep holding on to his pride, deceiving himself that he's self-sufficient, or he can decide in humility to let it go, to be honest before God and humbly seek his help. 
Now in Psalm 40, again, this is David, the king of Israel. And he knew he was nothing without God's grace. The king, who had it all, knew he was zero without God's grace. What a good example for anybody. Psalm 40, 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. I am afflicted and needy. In other words, don't forget about me, Lord. I need you. I know I'm nothing without you. That is humility. It was David that said, your gentleness makes me great. What is that? That's an admission of need. Without you, I'm nothing. Only the person willing. And when you say that word willing, remember free will. Only the person willing to admit his guilt before God is going to be rescued by God. Because God only gives grace to the humble. Think of a child that refuses to apologize to his parents for his mistakes. Is he going to receive grace from his parents? God is waiting for every man to concede his position, if you will. God is waiting for each man to admit his helpless situation and turn to God for the help, as David did. Turn to Psalm 107, verse 1. Psalm 107.1. I was reading a book this weekend, and this passage came up. And uh, it just fit in perfectly with what we're talking about. So obviously I take that from the Holy Spirit. Psalm 107.1. Let's read part of this chapter so we get the full picture. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desert region. They did not find a way to an inhabited city. They were hungry and thirsty. Their soul fainted within them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He delivered them out of their distresses. He led them also by a straight way to go to an inhabited city. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the, to the sons of men. For he has satisfied the thirsty soul and the hungry soul he has filled with what is good. There were those who dwelt in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, he humbled their heart with labor. They stumbled, and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their bands apart. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men. For he has shattered gates of bronze and cut bars of iron 
asunder. The psalm continues on in the same vein. Basically that God rescues those who cry out to him for help. Look again at verse 13. This verse is repeated several times in this psalm. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. He saved them out of their distresses. There, my friends, is a picture of the simplicity of salvation. But what if someone's not willing to cry out to the Lord in their trouble? He's not going to save them out of their distresses. That's why we had in verse 12, He humbled their heart with labor. He let them stumble. And there was nobody else to help. That was grace. God's grace in action. Because unless somebody cries out to the Lord, He can't save them. It's a beautiful picture of the simplicity of salvation, thus the need for repentance and faith. Two sides of the same coin. Do you see how without one, the other is not there in verse 13? Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. It's a picture of repentance and faith being granted by God to the one that finally is willing to humble himself before God. This is a, really the a picture throughout the whole Bible. The whole Bible. They cried out to God. So in other words, they denied self could do it. They denied their self-sufficiency. So God came to rescue like this. That's all he's waiting for is that turn, that positive decision, that positive response to need. It's all he's waiting for, and he's there in a, whatever, what did they say in the, back in the day, lickety-split. There he is. Zoom. Right there. He's like, he's, he's that eager to save. But he won't do it without humility. Here's a quote on this passage from Martin Lloyd-Jones on Psalm 107. In context, talking about God's salvation is available for all who realize their distress and who are anxious to be delivered out of the hands of the enemy that holds them in such terrible bondage. God is eager to save. But they must first realize their distress, right? They must realize they have a need. They must be willing to admit it. Again, God's salvation is available for all who realize their distress and who are anxious to be delivered out of the hands of the enemy that holds them in such terrible bondage. As the Spirit gave us on Sunday, God will not consummate someone's salvation in the absence of humble repentance. He won't do it. He doesn't compromise the truth. He doesn't play favorites. I give grace to the humble. I make war with the arrogant. He's God. He's not bowing down to anybody. He's like, this is the truth. All I'm asking you to do, human being, is to be willing to confess your need. Run to me, I'll pick you right up and do all the work. These are the holy truths of Scripture that Satan lies to man about. If he can just convince man he's good enough on his own, 
if he can just convince man there's no judgment to worry about. That, my friends, unfortunately, is half of our communities. That's what they really believe. There's no judgment to worry about. Um, if there is, I'm good enough on my own. Satan's done a marvelous job tricking people to think they're rich and wealthy when they're poor and naked. Marvelous job. But God in His grace, God in His grace allows suffering situations to bring someone to their knees as He did for all of us one way or another at some point. God in His grace. People are so quick to jump at God because they don't understand suffering. If they only knew the big picture, and if they only knew that suffering might be the very thing that saves them or saves a loved one, they would be thanking God profusely. As we just saw in both Psalms, by the way, Psalm 40 and Psalm 107, they were all, let us give thanks to the Lord, for He's good. Thank, you for, thank Him for His loving kindness. And in the midst of it all, suffering by grace that leads to eternal life. God giving grace to the humble is not a concept for believers only. This is something that I wanted to share with you as uh, Pastor brought up, you know, some attacks we've had lately on the ministry and on the gospel. God giving grace to the humble is not a concept for believers only. So I'm going to share this with you because it may help you deal with this misconception that some Christians have even. Most of us were misled by religions in the past. More than one come to mind that many of us here have in common. And people still stuck in that system of thinking will try to tell you that humility isn't required for salvation. I've had people tell me this. Christians, pastors, I've had people tell me humility isn't required for salvation. They say that it's adding to faith alone in Christ. But what they don't realize is they're watering it down themselves. They're failing to see what God's own word says on the matter. And this, again, this is coming up for your edification and for your um, equipping. So that when you deal with someone who proposes this, you have the scripture to go to. Like the scripture we're going to go back to in a minute. Humility is nothing more than a positive free will decision towards God. It might, in a way, be man's only part in this thing. If you had to narrow it down. In the passage we started with today, humility is directly attributed to salvation as man's only part in it. So turn back in your Bibles to uh, Luke 18. Luke 18, humility is directly attributed to salvation as man's only part in it. At least in this passage. Again, that positive charge or negative charge that man chooses when confronted with the truth. As pastor said on Sunday on the board, at the moment a need is recognized, either humility or arrogance meets it. There's no way around that statement. At the moment a need is recognized, the moment someone is 
it's revealed to them that they have a need. They're either going to meet that with one or the other. Humility or arrogance. There's no way around it. It's either, oh, I really do need the Lord's grace. Or it's, nah, I don't need that. At least not right now. I'm good. I'm all set. Ever hear that one? I'm all set. What does that mean? They obviously don't know the implications of what they're saying, but on the board again, Pastor said on Sunday, at the moment a need is recognized, either humility or arrogance meets it. We've all seen this happen in real life. Look at Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice first in verse 13, there's a picture of repentance, plain and simple. Some people struggle with what is, what is repentance or what does it look like? That's what it looks like. Someone beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I have a need. I can't save myself. I'm denying self. I can't save myself. I need you. What's complicated about that? It's not asking people to name all their sins that they don't even necessarily understand yet. It's an attitude, really. But by the grace of the Holy Spirit, man knows he's a sinner. He may suppress the truth in Romans 1, but deep down he knows he's guilty before God. How does he know this? Because the Spirit's convicting him. The only question is, does he meet that conviction with humility or arrogance? And that is really the question in salvation. And notice in verse 14. Look at verse 14 again. In context... It's talking about justification. Justification by faith. It's talking about salvation being granted by God. Somebody being justified by faith. This is salvation, my friends. Who does he grant saving grace to? The humble in verse 14. The humble. So don't let anyone tell you this has nothing to do with salvation. That humility has nothing to do with salvation. It's only for believers. When God gives grace to the humble and is opposed to the arrogant. Right here, Jesus said it plain as day in Luke 18. What God's been showing us, thank God, what God's been showing us is what it means to believe, what it means to have faith, and what it looks like. He's been doing that with us for a while now. And saving faith is humble and repentant. That's what it looks like. Otherwise, it's probably not saving faith. It's probably a counterfeit, which the whole Bible talks about, by the way. If you think about, just go scan through the Bible in your mind. You don't have to do it right now, but you start way back in the Old Testament in the first five books, right? You go through the whole Bible. You go through the whole New Testament as well. Jesus the apostles, 
Paul, Peter, James, John, they all talk about pretenders. They all talk about people that say they believe, but they're not of the faith. So what is the difference? Obviously, it's a big deal. What's the difference? This is the difference. Humility versus arrogance. Repentance versus self-sufficiency. God is waiting for the positive charge in a man's soul, if you will, just to stick with the analogy. He's waiting for humility. And that's why we often call saving faith a surrender towards God. It's really what it is. And you got people, you know, in church who think they're saved, but if you ask them anything about it, it's dependent upon them. Their salvation's dependent upon them. Or they're not that bad a person, they're not even a sinner, some people will say. Churchgoers. So what do you have there? On the board again, need must be recognized. The simple fact of the matter is that man is born so utterly depraved and needy that he must be 100% dependent on the holy God of the universe to pluck him out of his inherent despair. Man must admit his need and drop his self-sufficiency. Deny self and follow me. He must do that thing to be saved. 100% dependent on the holy God of the universe to save him. In other words, man must choose to drop his self-dependence, no longer holding on to his own attempt to satisfy God in his own power. And that, my friends, like, you don't know what someone else is thinking. You hardly know what you're thinking. Right? Sometimes you, you know, will run circles in your own mind. And this is a personal thing between each person and God. It is supernatural. And God's waiting for man to drop his own power, his own belief in his own power. And we might say, we're using the word surrender, right? We might say he raises the white flag. I don't know if you remember that teaching a while ago. Raising the white flag is a picture of repentance and faith in Christ to be saved. It's not playing with the flag or having it in your back pocket in case it really gets bad. That person's not saved. It's someone who gives up, who surrenders, who admits his need, and then God does all the work for him. Like, like we saw in Psalm 107. Cries out to the Lord, and the Lord rescues him out of, the, out of his troubles. Salvation is when man finally, willingly, raises the white flag to God. Not halfway not halfway up. If you if you if you're in a war and your enemy raises the flag halfway up, are you going to stop shooting? You'd be stupid to stop shooting because it's a trap or it's not a true surrender. So, <laughs> oh, the games man plays, the games we play. But biblically speaking, salvation is when when man finally gives up. 
when he willingly raises the white flag to God. Again on the board, need must be recognized. The simple fact of the matter is that man is born so utterly depraved and needy that he must be 100% dependent on the holy God of the universe to pluck him out of his inherent despair. And when that willingness or that spark occurs in a man's soul, God, as we talked about on Sunday, God picks him up and turns him around towards Christ. Just like God is the one that grants repentance, according to the Bible. When that little spark is seen, that surrender is seen in a man's soul, which is supernatural and private and personal between that, each person and God, God picks him up and turns him around towards Christ and saves him. God does everything. When a man says, I'm a sinner, Lord, I cannot save myself. In Luke 18, God be merciful to me, the sinner. In other words, I'm ready to receive your help. I'm ready. I'm not pushing against that anymore. I need you. It's the spark of repentance in the soul or a man's willingness to give up his own efforts and receive God's help. And in my mind, like what the Spirit has revealed to me personally about repentance, is it's an attitude of the heart about one sin against God. It's having the right attitude about one sin against God. We might again say on the board, admitting one need, on one's need, recognizing one's need. Paul called it a godly sorrow leading to repentance in 2 Corinthians. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that they are convicted that they're a sinner and can't save themselves. The Spirit's there the whole way. So we were reminded on Sunday on the board about one of the biggest deceptions, one of the greatest lies of Satan that's even perpetuated amongst the so-called Christian churches in this world is that man is not born like an orphan in need of an adoptive father. It's one of the greatest deceptions out there. That man is not born in sin, helpless to save himself. One of the greatest lies that Satan has perpetuated in the churches. Forget about outside the churches. That too, but he's even got grace perverted in the churches. How many times have you heard an unbeliever say, I don't need a Savior? In so many words. They don't usually say it maybe that exact way. Or they say, I'm all set. They don't even realize what they're saying. But the fact is they're not willing yet. They're not willing to admit their need. As Pastor also said on Sunday, this is the great deception in this world that keeps people from humble repentance, which precedes saving faith in Christ. If a person remains unwilling to admit his needs before God, he will not receive God's grace for salvation. Is there any question about that at this point? Like when we look at James 4, 6, God gives grace to the humble, makes war with the arrogant. The great deception in this world that keeps people from humble repentance 
Oh, this is the great deception in the world that keeps people from humble repentance. That must come before saving faith. If a person remains unwilling to admit his needs before God, he will not receive God's grace for salvation. I hate to think how many church-going people are not going to be saved in the end because of this arrogant stubbornness and pride. That's what it is, even in church-going people, right? Sometimes especially in church-going people who dress to the nines and think there's something special when they're not. The Bible says, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, for a reason. That's one of our big deceptions, one of our big self-deceptions. Romans 10.3 talks about it, the stubbornness of man's heart. But God knows, and we must rest in Him. He's graciously working on everybody. And sometimes we must step back like He does and simply pray for people. So be encouraged by this on the board again. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That should give us all hope. It gave us all hope before we were believers, and it should give us all hope that God can reach anybody because he's just so incredibly gracious. So let's again visit a powerful chapter as we begin to close. Um, go again to 1 John 3. And as the Spirit mentioned on Sunday, this is one of our main meals, one of our main platters on the table in this study on the deceitfulness of sin for several reasons. 1 John chapter 3. Satan wants to deceive the world, even believers, of what true faith looks like and its inevitable good results. Right there are two main deceptions mentioned in this chapter. What true faith looks like and the inevitable good results that come from it. 1 John 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies himself, just as He is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. Again, we're talking about habitually here. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. So get ready for what's stated next, right? Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just like Christ is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. Notice the word practices here. Okay, This is lifestyle. The one who, again in verse 7, practices righteousness is righteous, 
just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. How do you tell an adopted one from one who refused God's adoption? Might be in the churches. But how do you tell someone who's been adopted by God versus someone who's refused God's adoption? It's right there in verse 10. The children of God or the children of the devil? Those adopted by God, by grace, those who refuse the adoption, refuse the offer are children of the devil. How do you know the difference? How can you tell the difference? How can you tell if someone is saved or not? Now, we shouldn't walk around judging, but what's like the obvious sign, John's saying? Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So you can pretty much say if someone has zero, <laughs> all right, let's not even talk about gray areas. If someone's totally living for themselves and practices no righteousness and has no love for his brother, even burns his brother for selfish gain, that's a bad sign. That's a bad sign that he might be a child of the devil, even if he's playing religion. Verse 11, let's keep going. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were what? Righteous. The same thing mentioned in verse 10. The one who practices righteousness is of God. Verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Isn't this what we started with early in this message too? Didn't that come up from the Spirit? That wasn't in my notes. Don't be surprised. Why are you surprised when someone mocks you, even someone you love, or disrespects you? Why are you surprised? Verse 13, do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We know by this that we are of the truth. In other words, we're practicing righteousness. We have a desire to practice righteousness, even though we fail from time to time. We will know by this that we are of the truth 
and will assure our heart before Him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is His commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that He abides in us, by the Spirit whom He has given us. I mean, where does the desire to help others come from, even? Because we're all naturally selfish. Where does the desire to help others come from? It comes from the Spirit that He gave us. It's one of the signs that God has changed our heart and our attitude away from things we would have done in our youth or ways we would have thought in our youth. So back to our premise. When a person admits his need before God, God is free to bless him and give him grace and even change him by that grace. Grace is received by the humble, and God's grace results in power in the believer's life. Power like we just read about in 1 John 3. And this all came, also came up uh, from the Spirit on Sunday on the board regarding admitting helplessness. When the truth is reconciled in the soul of a person, then God delivers him in a variety of ways by grace. Just something to think about again. Think about the supernatural workings of a soul. Okay? If you will, the positive or negative charge. What the heck's going on in the brain, right? Science doesn't even know how the brain works. Maybe that's a picture of how the soul works inexplicably. When the truth is reconciled in the soul of a person. And like, I see... I know what I'm saying here. Like, I, I know what happened to me in my soul, like how it, for lack of a better phrase, how it clicked. But I can't describe it. And you have your own story and your own experience, your own way that God showed you the light and convicted you. You can't describe it because it's a, it's a switch. It's a whatever it is. It's a work of God in a man's soul. And when the truth is reconciled in the soul of a person, in other words, they come to their own agreement, they come to peace with it, that they're needy, and they actually need God, it is then that God delivers him in a variety of ways, by grace. God rushes to the rescue. As soon as somebody gives that willingness of surrender, on the board, we saw Luke 18, 13 through 14, Ephesians 2, 8, and James 4, 6. And this grace of God never comes up empty in a believer's life on earth. It doesn't come up empty. Do people still struggle? Yeah, we all do, right? Do we have bad days or bad seasons in our lives when we're not productive? Yeah, even like King David did. But what's the overall picture? What's the overall fruit? The grace of God never comes up empty in a believer's life. 
And we must be confident of that as truth in the Bible. The point the Spirit's making is don't back down from people that say this is, humility is not a part of salvation or needed for salvation. Don't back down when people say there's no fruit that's required to come out of a believer's life. Don't back down from that. The truth is so evident, like in this chapter we just read. The Bible would tell us to stand firm. So I guess we'll close with this verse. Ephesians 6, 14 through 16 on the board. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with the truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Deceptions, my friends. Deceptions from people we love, from religious people, from neighbors, from family. We'll be able to put those deceptions out. Why? Because we stood firm in the truth. We learned the truth. We practiced righteousness because we know the truth. We carry around the gospel and offer it to people, offer God's amazing adoption plan that he gave us. And the key is we stand firm when the deceptions are coming at us, telling us these things aren't true or aren't necessary. We know they are. So we need to, you know, tighten our belt, prepare ourselves, stand firm in the truth. By grace, tell the truth in love. And you can't ever go wrong. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you so much for your word and your spirit that brings all these things together for us. And Father, help work these things out in each of our souls as only you can do. Help us to remain willing and humble that we don't know what we think we know. Help us to Stop putting up blockades against you and our pride and our arrogance. Father, we thank you for your patience with us and your unfailing love. We ask that you bless us all as we go. And it's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit.